Welcome back to this next episode in this series with my guest, Dan Curry. He is an artist, filmmaker, martial artist, musician who has been, his work has been featured in over a hundred films and television productions. Uh, he's had 18 years on the various iterations of Star Trek and uh, he has been uh, a visual effects supervisor, producer. He's been a title designer, conceptual artist, martial arts, choreographer. He's won uh, Emmy Awards. I mean, this guy is a superstar in his world. And uh, so let's welcome Dan Curry back. Ooh! All right. So we've been talking about the art. We've been talking about science fiction. We've talked about uh, being influenced and impacted by other cultures and the wisdom of others and putting one's ego to the side. Um, and you, you know, in the break here, we were talking about um, other cultures and the impact and influence of them. And uh, you have something you wanted to share with us. Tell us a little bit about that and what it is. Well, my, my son uh, called this a phenomenon, the power of Star Trek and the uh -huh. influence that Star Trek has in different parts of the world. And it has nothing to do with me personally. It's product of Gene's creation and all the writers and the great producers and directors. At any rate, I was in New Zealand some years ago at a visual effects symposium sponsored by the International Visual Effects Society. And one evening on Guy Fawkes Day to celebrate the non-blowing up of the Houses of Parliament. <laughs> and I met this gentleman, Toa Wa'aka, who is a Maori warrior. And he knew from Star Trek that I had invented some weapons and we got into a discussion of spear ergonomics. And he had explained to me that Maori spears are unique in the world by nature of their design. And, oh. and I talked about some of the Asian spears and the flexibility. And I talked about my favorite disemboweling technique where you can stand in and quiver in a certain way. And, the, and you practice with a paintbrush on a wall, uh, drawing ellipses exactly the right size to Per, uh, perfectly removed the rectus abdominis plate. And lovely. <laughs> so uh, most other people drifted away from our conversation. I'm sure they did, yeah, particularly but, if they were snacking at the time. <laughs> but as uh, uh, so, we interacted during the course of my visit there. The last day before we were leaving, we had some of the other speakers and I were coming back from speaking at a university and there was Toa Wa'aka standing in the lobby of the hotel in a black suit holding this, uh, this spear. And it's a ceremonially, ceremonial Maori spear with beautiful carvings. But what made it unique is that the butt end of the spear doubles as an emergency paddle, but being thin on one side and thick on the other, if you deliver a blow at the butt end, it's much more devastating than had it been just a simple round shaft. Yeah. So wow. I kept wondering how I was going to get this wonderful gift home. And with some of the other speakers, we did a quick tour of the wine region of New Zealand and we went to the airport in Auckland and the biggest person I saw in New Zealand with the deepest voice of any human being I've ever encountered uh, 
uh, I had put the spear in a cardboard tube, but the tube wasn't long enough and I was afraid to check it in because one end or the other would break in, in the baggage handling. And having done a local flight and the, the air hostess didn't have any problem with the spear, she said, cool spear and stowed it away from me. I figured they just stow it in the, in the closet on the plane. Right. And so this guy comes out and says, sorry, mate, you can't uh, bring that on the plane. It's a weapon. Well, it's just a ceremonial spear. It's wood. What am I going to do with that? He's, Sorry, it's a weapon. You can't take it on the plane. So then one of the other speakers with me, Warren Franklin, who used to run ILM for George Lucas, said as a joke to me, said, well, that's OK. It's Stan Curry from Star Trek. And so the security guard, who is like a six foot five version of Arnold Schwarzenegger, said, Dan Curry, Star Trek, you're the inventor of the Batlet. Really? And he, and so he goes to the back room, brings out two more security guys and a roll of paper. He's, and so he said, if you'll draw a batless custom for us on this paper. Uh, so I, I drew them out and he said, normally I wouldn't do this, but I'll, I'll stow it on the plane myself. And he stowed it on the plane and true to his word, I got off the plane in LA and there's a uniformed security guard holding the spear and a sign with my name on it. That is awesome. That is awesome. <clears throat> and how cool that he knew you. Yeah, I couldn't believe it. <clears throat> yeah, because, you know, um, I didn't know who, who designed that. And I was a Star Trek fan since I was a kid. You know, well, so it's, it's so obviously cool. a martial artist. And, and he'd probably read, in, there were a couple of magazine articles about it. And Gung Fu magazine covered the Batleth in one of their, he probably read that. That is so cool. That is a great story. Thank you for sharing that with us. So, I mean, that is the, the power, like your son said, that is the power of Star Trek. The power of Star Trek is, is I mean, you know, I think there's, the, like I said, science fiction movies like or series like Star Trek and Star Wars, they've had such a, a massive impact uh, on us. I mean, a lot of it has been brought into the lexicon of, of normal language, you know, like, uh, you know, uh, comedians will say things like beam me up, Scotty. You know and I mean, you know, it's become part of normal language. You know, like I always say that, you know, Yiddish used to be the language of Jewish people. Now it's the language of Jewish people and New York Americans who've never, you know, never been in a synagogue because it's just part of the language. And there's a lot of that with, with things like Star Wars or, or Star Trek, particularly, you know, so that's that's really interesting, and that influence could be so powerful. Even the va the accelerated uh, search for the vaccine was called warp speed, right? Yes, Operation Warp Speed, exactly. Yeah, that 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 is really quite interesting. I um, I, I want to ask you: Have you been watching the new series, uh, Discovery? Uh, not uh, not really. Uh, I've been focusing on other stuff i had the book to write and so sure. I, I, the reason I, the reason i bring it up for you yeah. is i had not watched it i just started watching it in uh december of 2020 and the reason i found it fascinating was that for the first time the captain was a bit iffy and the captains in all the other series have always had this absolute sort of steel core of good you know and it's it's undeniable right 
sometimes naive, as in James C. Kirk. Um, uh, you know, it didn't matter who it was. There was always this. And, you, and in the first season of Discovery, I'm like, oh, I can see why people like this. This is, this is a departure for the captain. He doesn't seem to be quite as good. And there's this sense that there might be another element to this individual that we've not considered. Uh, and, I, and I thought that was very interesting because, as I said, the universal appeal is to that, that the leader is moral and good in all those in all those captains so that's i think that's a very interesting part of what you were saying before about the call to our better selves that's that's true yeah so you you designed the 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 weaponry that was featured in 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 star trek um like i said the the klingon weapons um but you also have designed instruments you're a musician You've designed it's guitars. True. Yeah, I've, uh, I've ineptly as uh, as I do, I, I've played the guitar for a long time, and I've always been searching for the perfect guitar ergonomically, and the Stratocaster made by Fender comes very close, but it needed something to fit me and. I started thinking about ergonomics and I did some sketches I, after watching a friend play the violin. And I noticed the function of the cheek piece and how it stabilized the instrument to make the violinist perform uh, with, with more confidence. Mm -hmm. And I felt the guitar could benefit from something like that. So I sent some sketches to my friend, Brandon McDougall, who was a digital model maker and animator for us on Star Trek. Mm -hmm. And Brandon did so many uh, great pieces for us, um, including the, these are, uh, are Brandon's work. Uh, I sent him some sketches and then he created the digital version of these ships. So Brandon was interested in, in the ergonomic idea I had about guitars. And so he said, well, let's make some. And this is one of them. And we call it the Kermac, Curry McDougal. And <laughs> I painted this to look like a nebula. Yeah, it's beautiful to look at. And so describe that to the people who are just listening and not watching. Uh, it's, uh, it looks somewhat like a, a standard uh, solid body electric guitar. But instead of being curved on the top, it's got a scoop in it. And the scoop functions like the, the cheek piece of a violin to hold your playing arm in a perfect, comfortable position. Right. And it's got, this one has Italian mother of pearl inlay on the neck in kind of a DNA helix pattern. I and I that. painted... Italy. It's a black guitar, and I painted the front with an airbrush to look like nebulosity, and then use an old toothbrush to add stars to it by spritzing it with my thumb. Right. But the the ergonomics are correct, and this curve, if you're standing playing, instead of just being a random curve, is actually uh, shaped it's in the rib cage, like human rib cage. Yeah. So when you wow. stand playing it, your playing arm is supported by the scoop in the top and it just 
you can play in a relaxed form all night long and and it's intentionally very light huh wow that's beautiful and here's an orange version of it yeah that's beautiful maybe stunning and but uh it, they play really well so i'm i'm very proud of them and that's uh, brandon is a wonderful luthier he makes his own line of uh, electric violins that are used by european concert artists that are very fluid uh he calls them liquid violins <laughs> and on another subject here's one i bought when i was in africa and this is called a township guitar and wow to... look at that that is awesome it's... so that is that looks like it's a petrol carrier it, it petrol absolutely can. is and th these are called township guitars and i used to walk by this guy in a market every day who played beautifully he was like Jimi hendrix on the softer side and he had a group of friends and they made these for sale so i wanted one to play a practice with anyway and brought this home and it's got colorful traditional african patterns on it but it's, it's made of i mean if, if you can't see this if you're just listening i mean the 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 african design on it is so beautiful uh, and colorful and uh, but this is uh for those of you probably not old enough to remember petrol cans uh it's an sort of oblongish uh can is it, it is an electric guitar yeah, and it's an electric guitar. It's got uh, single coil pickups, and you can flip between them. Uh, and it sounds vaguely like a Stratocaster with a hint of Dobro in it. That is so cool. I've got to ask really you. It's really fun to play. When did you buy that? Uh, a few years ago when I was working with uh, on the remake of Clan of the Cave Bear with the great right. French director Pierre Morel. Can I, I got to ask you, what did you pay for it? I was, I decided I was in a position to be generous because I was, had a nice per diem and I figured why, why argue with the guy? So I paid $300 for it and he was delighted. Oh, I'm sure. Cause you probably could have got it for 80 bucks or something, but you could afford it. And that's, that's I could great. afford it. And he was a really good player and it was more honoring his, his playing, he's he yeah. uh, not really good. He was an excellent player. And I bought a couple of CDs of his as well. Uh, so it was an honor to meet such a- Support an artist, yeah. player. And yeah, support an artist, why not? Yeah, of course. But it's, I mean, it's a beautiful piece. Like now I'm, I'm like, I, I wanna, I, what's it called? What kind of guitar? They call it a township guitar. Township guitar. I, I actually, I'm going to go look on, I wonder if I, um, on YouTube, I can find somebody playing a township guitar. Uh, I'll get his name for you and email to you later. Yeah, that would be cool because that is incredible. That's so beautiful. So have you played music since you were a kid or is that something you picked up later on? Or what? No, I've always played music. Uh, we had a piano at home. I never conquered the king of instruments, the piano, but I played oboe uh, and then I played switch to bassoon. So I was in the high school orchestra, the marching band. Um, I sing like a cocker spaniel that just gargled with Drano, but I endeavored to be in the chorus and, and 
then as I got into high school, I started playing the guitar and have played guitar ineptly since uh, 1960. But you've uh, you've met a couple of uh, famous musicians and hung out with a couple of them, right? Uh, this is true. Um, I one time had <laughs> don't the, be shy. <laughs> uh, when I was in college, uh, I was in a really terrible band, but we used to play the fraternity party circuit, and we were doing winter carnival at Dartmouth. And there, one of my friends rushed over from one of the other buildings and said, "Hey, you got to come over and." and see these guys, they're incredible. And so it was a band called King Curtis. It was a blues band. And we went over and watched them. And every once in a while, there was this young guy who would play the guitar with his pick in his teeth and he'd play behind his head and he'd play through his legs. And, and his mastery of the instrument was so intuitive that he thought it and it happened. And his musical taste was such that whatever he did was perfect for the moment. Mm -hmm. And they were playing really classic blues. And when they finally took a break, we went over and talked to them and said, we're the assholes playing next door, but uh, you guys are terrific. And they said, well, we're, when you're done, why don't you come over and jam with us? And we said, well, we're not even in your league. They said, oh, who cares? Come on over, we'll just play. We'll sit around, have a few beers. So when we were done, we hauled our gear over there and we pretended to play with them while they were kind to the talentless amateurs and about a year and a half later one of my friends came rushing in with a a vinyl lp which was the state of the yeah. art at the time of course and he said you got to check this out remember that guy at dartmouth and it was uh, jimmy hendrix experience you jammed with Jimi Hendrix. Well, I wouldn't go that far. I <laughs> and held my guitar while they played. Yeah, that's pretty amazing, man. That is amazing. All along the Watchtower. <laughs> that is so, so cool. That is amazing. And uh, that was when? What year? Oh, that would have been 19... 67 66 wow. you, didn't you also meet lennon uh, no i never met john lennon but i did meet john uh, george harrison george harrison and uh, i worked on caveman with ringo star really and if 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 you people uh, are not aware of caveman it's a uh, a neolithic comedy and that's where ringo met barbara bach and Dennis Quaid is in it, and it's uh, about a giant Tyrannosaurus that eats marijuana and kind of staggers around. It's a, a caveman comedy, very funny. Right. And uh, so he was always a joy. He would, when he'd walk on the set, suddenly everybody would be happy. He just radiated fun. And Richard Stocky did. Years later, uh, we were working on Star Trek Deep Space Nine and one of the post-production facilities in Santa Monica, the owner was a, a good friend of George Harrison and they were playing, they were working on a documentary about Ravi Shankar and every once in a while, George Harrison would come in and you'd kind of see him from a distance. Yep. And the owner had 
an incredible guitar collection. His office looked like guitar center with 50 guitars hanging on the wall and odd rare ones like harp guitars, stuff like that. Wow. We became friendly and he said, well, if I'm not here at lunchtime and you take a break, you want to play the guitars, come in. So I would go in and ineptly pluck the strings and pretend I knew something about music. And I was playing alone and outside of his office door, there was a floor to ceiling window that anybody coming in, all you could see was a silhouette because they were backlit by the outside light. Right. And this lanky guy sticks his head in and looks around says, where's Alan? I said, I don't know, he's out. I said, who are you? And I said, I'm Dan Curry, I work on Star Trek. He said, I like Star Trek. And in walks George Harrison. Wow. And uh, so he was kind enough to sit down and chat with me for a bit. And he asked me if I knew any Beatles songs. And then he picked up an old Martin off the wall and asked me what my favorite Beatles song was. And I said, well, I'm not saying this to kiss your posterior, but uh, my, guitar my guitar gently, gently weeps. And uh, so he played for me sitting about uh, three feet away. Oh, man. Talk about being in the aura of greatness. I mean, you're, you're hanging out, quote, jamming with George Harrison and then uh, with, with um, Jimi Hendrix. And then George Harrison is playing While My Guitar Gently Weeps. Holy crap, man. Well, well, what impressed me the most was here's somebody who is a real legend, uh, a real genius, uh, one of the most eloquent uh lyricist with the way he would do his solos uh, you know obviously with, when you think about something and how beautifully he played that um he was just so utterly unfull of himself and he actually knew a lot about star trek because he asked me questions that only somebody who watched the show would ask and i just uh i rarely tell a story because few people would ever believe it so i yeah and when i went back to the edit bay and said you wouldn't believe what just happened said, no we don't believe it just happened <laughs> <laughs> that is very cool that is very cool just um it, it's interesting to me dan because you you know i mean aside from obviously these two legends you've probably met in your journey, you know, living in the Hollywood world, you've probably met an enormous amount of extremely famous people. Um, and it, it's interesting to me because I've met many of them too. Not, I'm sure not even a fraction of as many of you have, but I find they fall in generally fall into two categories. One is complete dicks who've got their head so far up their ass. They, you know, they can see their own, a diaphragm and the majority of them though that i've met have been very accessible and i'll use that word as in you know they got over themselves and usually it's because they're older the ones i've met were like that i've just they've realized oh i was believing my own shit and i'm kind of over it now is is that your experience or is that just me yeah, I, I think it's also genetic. Some people are predisposed to being walking colons and other people are uh, are really <laughs> terrific. And I found that the, mo the more talented they were, 
uh, the less full of themselves they were. Yeah, you see, right there, we're back to this theme of artistry and mastery. You know, I've, I've often said that a master is not someone who has mastered something, but who lives in constant pursuit of mastery. In, in other words, there's always another level. There's an always something I can grow into, I can develop into, and there's that openness. And the moment you have the, uh, the, three, the three most dangerous words engraved in your brain, which is, I know that, meaning I'm there, I think you're dead in the water, but masters don't do that. Masters are always learning. And even Harrison, there's a great story of George Harrison learning to play guitar from Eric Clapton and Clapton teaching him and him sitting and playing till his fingers bled so he could get as good as, as Clapton was and that he practiced for eight hours a day um, just because he wanted to always up level. And, and I find that that is part of what I admire in, in great artists is this level of mastery, this desire to keep going. Well, there's another factor that I consider, and that is artist as explorer versus artist as manufacturer. Tell, tell us about that. Well, some artists, they hit something that sells and they start making a lot of money from it and they manufacture it. I know of some artists who hit a style that became very popular and for the next 25 years, they do the same piece over and over again because people are willing to shell out negotiable currency in order to obtain one. Mm -hmm. uh, then there are artists that are explorers who yes. are willing to take a risk, are willing to fail to discover something new. And I would say Picasso is the greatest example of that as a painter, that if you look at the work he's done over the years, each piece, even though he might do a whole series of pieces that are very, very similar, as you look at them, you come to understand he was exploring, he was looking for something. He'd do a piece and say, well, maybe I should change that a little bit and they'd do another one like it. And so he wasn't manufacturing, like say a successful portrait artist may hit a style and you look at one they did 20 years apart and you can't really tell a difference stylistically. Mm -hmm. But uh, artists do explore using the Beatles as a, an example in music. You look at, I want to hold your hand versus come together. Yeah. Uh, uh, Revolver versus Abbey Road. Mm -hmm. And they were always exploring. They were always looking for something new. They were always looking for a way to better themselves. They'd be exposed to the work of Bach and then they would somehow incorporate that. Uh, if you listen to Blackbird, it's very influenced by, by Johann Sebastian Bach, mm -hmm. and who was a great guitarist in his own right. So uh, that's why I've been inspired to, as limited as my talents are, to be that kind of exploratory artist. Mm. Uh, Leonardo da Vinci, probably my greatest hero, was an explorer in everything. Yeah. I mean, the, the personification of the Renaissance man is Leonardo da Vinci, an inventor, a mathematician, uh, an artist. I mean, like, was there anything the guy couldn't do? 
and and it's really interesting there and great musician yeah all right exactly right production so, designer invented the air conditioner i didn't know that yeah i, I didn't know about the i didn't know about the helicopter but not the air conditioner just yeah, and it's, well we call them swamp coolers now where he would have uh, water dripping through uh this very rough fabric and then uh uh sometimes water powered fans just blowing the the moist air into a, a palace and that would uh, cool it we now call them swamp coolers amazing hey eh? i mean just amazing and and one of the things i found really interesting about about that like so for me personally my my uh my failing at school was math <laughs> i was terrible at math um and yet uh, i study uh quantum physics and physics uh never understood them never was able to communicate the math side of it but when i looked at uh, when I, I had a friend of mine who helped me to understand the the beauty of math when he when he showed me the golden ratio in the work of leonardo and others right so that that the golden ratio piece you you, you explored that much yes uh that's also the ratio between the center lines of the columns on the Parthenon. Exactly. So the golden ratio, for those of you who don't know, is a, is a sequence of numbers, a, a mathematical equation, and by which we uh, quite naturally uh, imbue beauty. We decide that something is beautiful based on a golden ratio. There's actually a, a, a plastic surgeon in California who wrote a book about uh, the golden ratio and that he does his plastic surgery based on a go uh, the golden ratio and he will move something or do something like, you know, fractionally, but just moves it into the golden ratio. Nobody can tell what he's done except that suddenly this person is beautiful uh, and uh, it's in all art. It's in design. It's in, as you said, in buildings. Well, uh, they, the golden ratio, if you can imagine a rectangle, that if you take the the smaller proportion, the smaller end, and flip it over on its side and then stand it up again so you have a square, mm -hmm. the new rectangle that's the that's left over when you use one edge as a square is the same proportions as the original rectangle. And right. you keep flipping them over and over again and you get this perfect spiral that yes. in nature is personified by the shell of the Nautilus. Exactly, it's in the shell of the Nautilus. And we can see it, we can see it in plants, we can see it in, in so many things. And it's, you know, it's, it's part of the original design of so many things, but it, it shows up and we can, it's, it's kind of like art and math that seems to me like it's it's built into our psyche. I, I, I find that in itself a, a phenomenal philosophical journey. Like what is the journey of the, the uh, originality of the golden ratio? Well, it's the same as uh, I, I joked about it earlier, the, the sacred number 12. Mm -hmm. And people wonder why there's the baker's dozen right as opposed to the baker's 10 because we have 10 fingers mm -hmm. and the reason is once you start dividing things if you divide 
10 by two, you get five, but then if you buy, divide that by two, then you get two and a fraction. half and you start having to have fractions where if you have 12, you can divide it by two, you can divide it by three, you can divide it by four. Mm -hmm. And it makes it easy for people to share. Ah, that's interesting. That's interesting because uh, it's one of the focuses of my work is on the importance of community and what community is about that, that mathematical piece around 12s and divisions of 12 in sharing, which also comes to the number of 120, which is a community number. Um, people don't understand that. And that in companies, that companies that become more than 120 people, if they don't divide, they start to fall apart because there's a loss of communication. So it's very interesting. And 12 people on a jury. 12 people on a jury, yeah. You know, uh, uh, the 12 judges. I mean, you know, it's it's an interesting number. 12 disciples. It's, it's very interesting. We're already at the end of this particular episode of... Uh, Curiosity Bites with my guest, Dan Curry. Uh, we've been talking about Maori weapons. We've talked about music, ergonomics, and of course, Jimi Hendrix and George Harrison. And they ended up on the golden ratio. Where will we go in the fourth episode of this particular uh, series with Dan Curry, artist, musician, and Emmy Award winner? We'll be back for, for the next part and we'll see you on the other side. Stay curious, my friends. Stay curious. See you soon.